You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Hi. Yeah, so everybody's like, no, you're supposed to say good morning. Good morning, everybody. See, doesn't that feel a little bit better? Instead of just saying hi. Hi is just way too formal. I mean, informal. Um, hey, uh, yeah, this morning, um, I haven't done something foolish in a while, so I needed to do something foolish. Um, uh, particularly, uh, I need, um, I'm going to need a volunteer, I guess. Uh, let's see, I'm going to need, um, let's see, maybe I shouldn't do a volunteer. Maybe I should just pick on Jonesy. Jonesy, you want to come up here and help me? Okay, okay. And uh, so Jonesy's going to, just stand right there. Inviting Jonesy up on stage is a wild card move anyways. Okay, um, so uh, Jonesy, have you ever watched The Price is Right? Yes, I have. You have? Absolutely. Do you like Bob Barker or do you like Drew Carey? Man, Bob Barker. Bob Barker, see, everybody loves Bob Barker. Yeah, nobody likes Drew Carey. He's ruined the show totally. Okay, uh, there's this segment on uh, There's this segment on Price is Right called uh, Checkout, I think is what it's called, or it's called Cashier or something like that. Anyways, basically what you do is you get three items and you have to guess the price of the items and all three items have to be within $2, high or low. And if you get it, you win all the items and another prize. Another prize. Are you ready to play? Yeah, let's play. All right, all right. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, so here we have uh, three random items here. I told you to stand over there. Oh, okay. I'll turn it off. We have some Dawn dish soap. We have some Ziploc uh, quart-sized storage bags, the 75 family pack. All right. Because families need to store lots of stuff. Okay. And we have here fudge stripe cookies. Yeah. Yes, everyone loves fudge stripe cookies. And uh, here's a little uh, little pro tip, little life hack for you. Uh, if you don't like doing the whole chocolate and graham cracker s'more thing, these things are fantastic. If you put the marshmallows in between them, throw a s'more. You don't have to worry about the chocolate. I'm just saying, they're just amazing. So, um, okay. So, are you ready to guess these three prices and uh, and and get within two dollars to win all of this? Yeah. And you will walk away, sir, with. Nothing less than a Girl Scout cookie box of s'more cookies just for your own. Think about how much co- you could store them in these quarter, these quart-sized Ziploc bags along with some fudge strep cookies and meter these things out for, like, at least a day. Yeah. yeah. That's not all. Probably. And that's not all. There's more. There's more. Potentially a lawnmower. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, sorry. Uh... <laughs> Alright. <laughs> so are you ready? Sure. Okay, right. these three items you need to make a guess. And you can you can ask the audience if you're high or low or whatever, okay? So Okay, so uh what do you want to start with? You wanna start with the let's do with the fudge stripe cookies. Can we uh let, let's get a guess on the fudge stripe cookies. What do you think? Fudge stripe cookies. I'm saying it's like somewhere around two, three dollars. Well, you gotta, you can't give me a range. You gotta pick one. You just, a range. Okay. Three dollars. Uh, what do you guys think? You think he's high? You think he's low? What do you think? They're going higher. Uh, you can, and you can, you don't have to listen to them because they don't really know what they're talking about, just so you know. Is he higher? Is he lower? What do you guys think? These guys are saying higher. Some people are saying lower. What do you want to go with? Four dollars. No, you, what do you, what do you think? I'm gonna go with four. You're gonna go with four dollars? Are you sure? Are you 100% sure? You told the audience. I've told Okay. Okay. We're gonna put down, we're gonna put down four dollars here. $4 
Florida. Are you sure? Yeah. I'm Are you positive? Positive. You guys think he's still too high? Man, Tyler's saying you're way too high right now. I'm way too high. Yeah, that's what he's saying. And he looks like he might be a he might be a fudge stripe expert. <laughs> But you're going to stick with four? I'm going to go back to three. You're going to go back to three. Okay. You're going to go back to three. You're going to, wow. Jonesy is very influenceable. That could be a dangerous thing. Okay, so three dollars. Now, what do you guys think? Is he higher? Is he low? Do you think he should stick? you think he should stay? Okay, what do you think? you want to stay? you going to stay with three? You want me to put on? I'm going to do my my auction here. Somebody else is saying four. Hey, we got a three. You got a three. You got a three. You got a three. You got a four. I'm going to do it at three fifty. Three a three fifty? Wow, he's got a three fifty. Okay, Stefan shaking his head. Three fifty. What do you think? You just stick there? Yeah, we're going to. You're going to stick there. Okay, three fifty. Stick there. Don't meet halfway. It was in fact three dollars exactly. So you are now. Yep. So you're okay. But you're you're fifty cents. You got a dollar fifty to spare yet. Okay. Okay. So you are at you're at fifty. 50 cents, uh, 50 cents difference. You're actually right now 50 cents high. So, uh, but okay, so we've got that. That's $3. So those are mine. Well, not yet. <laughs> you got to get within $2. You got $1.50 to go on these next two items. Oh, Let's okay. go with which one you want to try. You want to try the soap? Uh, sure, why not? Okay. Soap. Here we go. What do you think? Whoa, somebody actually just said something out there. Jeez, Lori. Did you hear what she said? She said 339. Yeah, 339. That's what she said. Okay, she says 339. <laughs> no, I can say these are, we gotta give the standard. These are Walmart prices, just so you know. These are all Walmart prices that I wrote down. This is Dawn. This is good dish soap. They don't offer this size at the dollar store. Thank you very much, Devin. So, okay, so, so what do you think? What do you want to give? Uh, I'm gonna go with what I heard. Three thirty-nine. You're gonna go with what you heard. Three thirty. You sure? I'm gonna go with it, man. You're positive. Lori said it. Lori said it. And she picked an exact sense amount, which makes it sound more authoritative, so I'm doesn't go with it? Three thirty. Yeah, man. She's a good salesperson. You guys think she's good? You think she's good? I think she's good. Okay. And I'm it is in fact three forty-four. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, I got this. You are now 55 cents. Let's do the next. Hi. Let's do the next one. Okay. Ziploc baggies. Ziploc baggies. Now remember, this is the 75 family size, quart size Ziploc brand Ziploc baggies. Family size. I should get like I should have got the music up here. So, okay. Uh, anyways, yeah, you got some different numbers here. Yeah, you got six. You got three. You got everything all over again. You got five over here, man. Joni doesn't. Jonesy doesn't know what the heck's going on right now. He has the foggiest idea. What's that? We had a we had a forty dollar no four forty nine. We got a three. We got a six. We got a yeah. Don't listen to the kids. They're all saying four. Four forty nine. Don't listen to the kids. Don't listen to the kids. Four forty nine. Okay, he says four forty nine. What do you guys think? Is he high? Is he low? Stop! Stop! Amazon researching it. There, back there, Tyler. Is he high? Is he low? Does he need to go higher? You guys thinking? The other all saying low. They're all saying you're low. Boy, I don't know, man. What do you think? I'm gonna give you a chance here. I'm gonna stick with it. You're gonna stick with it. Whoa, that is gutsy. Are you guys sure? Four forty nine. Okay. Um, can we get a real brief drum roll? Anybody? It is. Uh, it's fine. Okay. It is in fact seven dollars and thirty seven cents. But for being a good player, you can take all this garbage with you anyways. You just don't get the cookies. Oh, man. What a trick. 
In fact, it is quite difficult for us to determine the difference between what something is worth and how much we value it. One of the reasons why you guys all guess those Ziploc baggies really small is because, are they really worth a whole lot? Not seven bucks. You're paying for the brand. You got dollar store baggies everywhere else, right? Yeah, you got the brand name ones. Um, we could have got the great value ones or whatever they are, the uh, Marketplace Fresh or something like that, and uh, and and would have been a little bit less. But it's really hard to determine the value of stuff because it's based off of usability, how much people will pay for it, what other people view it as value, what other people view its value to be. And today, what I hope to do is, I hope to, as we launch into the book of Nehemiah, I'd like to help you see the value of Jesus, which oftentimes, like a Ziploc baggie, I don't mean to compare Jesus to a Ziploc baggie, but the way that we value these items is based off of sometimes how other people see these items, sometimes based off of the reliability of the name brand, sometimes based off of quality. But certain things are worth more to us given their impact, given their, given their quality, given the amount of things that, the the amount of, uh, the amount of, uh, quality they bring to our life. And so these are some of the things we're going to talk about today. I want you to be able to see the value of Jesus as we look at the book of Nehemiah. Now this is no small task because we have to look backwards into thousands of years of history into Nehemiah. And then we have to study who Nehemiah is and then understand that there's a picture of Jesus in the person of Nehemiah. Before we jump into that, one of the things that we want to value today is, of course, today is... Father's Day. And it is hard to place value on a father. But I will tell you that we do value fathers, especially those of you who may be, uh, maybe you have, aren't a, a physical dad, but you're spiritually fathering people. Or maybe you've had lots of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and they've moved on, but you have continued to uh, play a fathering role in people's lives. I just want to tell you that without you guys, we'd all be a little bit nuts. There's nuts here. Yeah, it's a horrible joke. Uh, but Green and Jonas, will you come help pass these things out and pass out a couple of a uh, couple of bags of nuts to every every guy here? Why not? I mean, everybody's got it. So there you go. Go ahead and pass some things out, and uh, go help him. Grab a handful. Grab a handful. Hopefully nobody's allergic. If they are, don't open them. And we'll have our EpiPens ready. Um, well, anyways, back to this. What we uh, what we need to do is is I want you to see the value of Jesus through the book of Nehemiah. Now, I've been setting up the book of Nehemiah for the last several weeks, where uh, um, you know we we've been talking about the historical context of Nehemiah, what who Nehemiah is, who he was, what he did, when he existed, all of that stuff. And one of the things that I love about the Bible, one of the things I love teaching about the Bible, is the fact that the Bible does have. Uh, the Bible does have this 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 pattern, this um, this imprint, this imagery that exists throughout all of the Old Testament and into the New. You can read all kinds of Old Testament literature and Old Testament stories, and what you see is you see kind of the 
the fingerprint or the shadow of Jesus imprinted into places all over the Old Testament. And what you end up seeing is sometimes this is through people, sometimes it's through prophets, sometimes it's through kings, sometimes it's through priests, sometimes it's through judges, sometimes it's through, um, sometimes it's through events, but sometimes what, what God is showing clearly through the passage that you're reading of the story of the people of Israel is He's placing an image in there going, this is the type of person you're to be looking for when I send my Messiah, when I send the person that's going to come and save everything. Now, Nehemiah was written uh, about events that happened about 450 to 500 years before Jesus. So this is a, this is a pretty big deal. Like, I want, you, I want to help you see some of the character qualities that God has placed inside of Nehemiah that are reflections of, or, or future reflections of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Nehemiah was written, like I said, 500 years before Christ, where we find ourselves in Israel's history in the book of Nehemiah is that the Israelites have been exiled. Now, this is a big moment in the people of Israel. And if you have been with us for the last few weeks, you know what's about to come. Grab your little um, your little handout bulletin things. If you didn't grab one, that's okay. But there are little icons down the side of your, uh, down the side of your handout. And these icons represent the different points of Israel's history. And I've been teaching this because I want you to know this. You need to know the storyline of Israel's history because this is the storyline that which God uses to show the, the coming Messiah, to show His character, to show who He is to all of humanity. And so there's some points here that we need to start off with. The first one, you see these icons, the first one is uh, a tree there, right? Is that what it is? No. No, it's an earth. It's an earth. So the first one is creation. Now, I did make some hand motions because it is summer and we need to channel our VBS uh, VBS our vacation Bible schoolness. So, um, and I used to be a vacation Bible school teacher. So there are some hand motions that go with each of these things. So the first one is creation. Yeah, you got to give me jazz hands. So creation. Then the next thing that happens after creation is that Adam and Eve sin. So there's creation, and then there's the fall. Right. So creation, fall. You got these. All right. Then the next one is what happens is God calls to Abraham and he says, you will be, I will make your children like, uh, like more numerous than the stars and I will make you many nations. Okay. So he calls them into nations. So these are the stars. All right. So we got, we're going to go from the beginning. We got creation, fall, nations. And then that nation that he calls out into existence, the nation of Israel, they end up going into Egypt into captivity. Okay. So they get, they get placed into captivity. Now that, uh, if you study the scriptures, Exodus is like it's this um, in Egypt. It's like this incubation center where the people of Israel grow really fast because it's in Egypt. In the time, was one of the most powerful nations in the world. So God puts His people in captivity into the nation of Israel in order to grow. Excuse me, into the nation of Egypt in order to grow them. So we have creation, we have fall, we have nations, we have captivity, and then after the captivity, we have. Exodus, okay, so that's just get out of here, right? Eventually God gets them out of the nation of Egypt. But not only do they go out, but they also wander around, okay? They get stuck wandering around. So we're going to do some review. We have creation, fall, nations, captivity, Exodus, wandering. Okay, I think you guys have got this so far. You're doing really well. Then, 
they wander around, eventually they go to the promised land. They end up in their land that God has promised them. It wasn't easy to get there, and it certainly easy, isn't easy when they get there. And eventually God says, okay, this promised land, uh, we're going to help, uh, we're going to help you rule over, we're going to save you from certain things, you're going to fall into sin, and then as you fall into sin, I'm going to save you by sending judges into, this is judges, judges into your midst, and they're going to be like your saviors. They're going to be your mini saviors. They're going to be warriors. So the judges, and it's a great book to read, judges. It might be one of the ones we teach someday soon here. Um, and then, not only do they go to the judges, but the next thing is the nation asks for kings, and they want kings. So we've got creation, fall, nations, captivity, exodus, wandering, promised land, judges, kings. And then as the kings are there, they don't do necessarily a great job. Yes, Jonas, I like your kings. So as the kings are there, they don't do necessarily a great job. And they fall away from the Lord. They lead the people away from the Lord. And they stop listening to the Lord. So God exiles them. This is where we're at in Nehemiah. He sends them out. And then he calls them to come back. That's the return. So he sends them out and he calls them back. That is the storyline of all of the Old Testament history-wise up until Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, those types of time frames. So um, Ezra and Nehemiah, the people are being called back into Israel and they're building the the temple and building the wall that has been laid to ruin. Now, Nehemiah, we found out earlier in the first week, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. Uh, cupbearer to the king is the guy who tastes all of the wine before the king tastes it in order to make sure that it is not poison, right? Yep. So think about the position this guy has. Every single day he's facing, as Nick pointed out several weeks ago, he's facing his own life. He's facing his own, he's staring down death in the, in the eye and he's going, today's the day. And he drinks a cup of wine and says, today's not the day. Here you go, king, right? And every day he does that. He's actually uh, about the second or third highest position in the kingdom that we know from history. So, cupbearer to the king, really high-ranking official, and all of a sudden God says, in his, God breaks Nehemiah's heart for injustice, for the injustice of the fact that Jerusalem lies in ruin, and he prays and he prays and he prays, and God moves and brings Nehemiah back into the country. This is where we are at in Nehemiah, uh, and we are in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. So if you have a Bible, grab one. If you didn't, we have some underneath the chairs for you, or open up some sort of device and scroll your way to Nehemiah chapter 5, if I can even find it. There we go. And what we have here is we have this, uh, actually this incredible chapter about Nehemiah. Um, what has happened in the story of Nehemiah to date so far is, first of all, he was brought back from the kingdom that he was exiled. He was brought back to Jerusalem, and uh, and he begins this he begins this process of rebuilding the wall. And as he's rebuilding a wall, all the people pitch in, the whole kingdom pitches in with him. They're all building a wall next to him, and he is, uh, as Nick pointed out last week, he's even standing up against. Uh, opposition and naysayers who are saying, uh, "Hey, stop building that wall," and he's like, "No," and that was pretty much where the, where we uh, where we left off. And now Nehemiah chapter five, they're building the wall. They're pretty much finished with it, actually, but they're building the wall, and something happens with the society around them, the people around them. And so we're going to read the chapter, and I'm going to help you to see a few things, and then we're going to make this correlation. We're going to help you see how Jesus is reflected in the person of Nehemiah. So, verse 1, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against the Jewish brothers. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. 
Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So what they're doing is they're upset that uh, that there's a hardship, a famine that has come into the land. They can't get grain, they can't survive, and in order to survive, they're having to either sell off children or mortgage their property. And they're mortgaging their property to their brothers and sisters, to the people who are um, who are supposed to be of one flesh with them. And what happens is these people are extorting them for money. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Say, hey, you know, I can't make ends meet. I'm going to go down to uh, what's the one? There's a, I'm going to go down to the the cash advance place, and they're going to extort me with 45 percent interest. This happens today. That's what's going on here. Verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. Now, the ESV English Standard Version uses this great phrase where he says, I took counsel with myself and then accused the nobles and officials. And just like, it's just a lot more imagery. We're like, okay, I'm going to have a conversation in my head with myself. But he says, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. And I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gent, bought back, excuse me, our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet for they could say nothing. You ever been in one of those situations where somebody's calling you out and you don't have anything to say because they're right? I haven't because I always have something to say. <laughs> so I continued. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending to the people and money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Let's the, let the taxation stop. Give back to the give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath. So he steps up his game. He's like, okay, you say something, but I'm going to bring the priests here, and you're going to swear before God that this is what you're going to do. So I made them swear that they would do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe. Now he takes on a prophet mentality, and he starts doing something. He's shaking out the folds of his robe and says, In this way may God shake you out of his house and possession, every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and empty. And this is Nehemiah actually cursing these guys if they don't do what they are claiming to do. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Church moment. And the people did as they had promised. That's actually pretty miraculous. The people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. 
Their assistants also lorded it over them, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds." In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Now, what, oh, and then verse 19, remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I have done for these people. Now in verse 18, that one ox, six sheep, some days, and an abundant supply of wine of all kinds, that is all coming out of Nehemiah's pocket. So what happens here is he's talking about the fact that not only did he fight for the people who were being abused financially, but he also gave to them out of his own pocket. Tons and tons and tons. For 12 years, he gave to them out of his own pocket. This is a beautiful thing. And Nehemiah as a leader is somebody that we should take note of. He's got actually quite a few things, quite a few leadership capabilities, or excuse me, leadership qualities that we look for in every single leader. And here's some that I will give you. So um, first one, in verses 1 through 5, we see that Nehemiah actually is a, a leader who listens to his people. He's a leader who listens to his people. Great leaders hear their people. Great leaders hear their people. This is what every one of us wants in a leader or a boss or a manager. You want someone who knows where you've been, who's worked the job that you've worked, who understands the struggle you're going through, who understands the things that are happening and can listen to your voice and respond appropriately. This is the foundation of effective ministry, and it's actually one of the most misunderstood principles of all in all of humanity. You are only as effective as your experience allows you to be. You're only as effective as your experience allows you to be. I remember my days as a, as a youth pastor trying to tell parents how to parent their teenagers. I was 20-something, right? 27, 20, 25, 26, 27, as a youth pastor. And I remember getting so angry at these parents who would not listen to their children. Because the kids would come to me and go, my parents don't ever listen to me. And then I'd talk to the parents about that and they'd be like, oh, well, actually we do listen to them. We just don't do everything they ask us to do. And I'm like, oh, but you're just parents, you don't understand, right? And then one day I became a parent of teenagers. And I wanted to call every single parent I had ever worked with ever to apologize to them profusely for the fact that I did not ever understand how absolutely horrible it is to be a parent of teenagers. I mean, I love, I love my teenagers, but it is something happens all of a sudden, like winter, she's not here anymore, I can pick on her. So she's in Uruguay and, uh, right now, and I remember actually when she was about 13, right, all of a sudden she came home and it was like, who are you? Why are you talking like that? Stop it. Go home and return the person that left here this morning, right? And she uh, she just changed almost overnight. And she entered the, that teenagerness where all of a sudden she had she, she had struggles trying to figure out how to relate with humanity. Let's just put it that way. Uh, side note, um, Sorry, I don't mean to take time to do this, but I'm going to give you a quick winter update. Let me tell you about the story of Winter Goes to Chile. Yeah, it's fine. Let me tell you a story about Winter Goes to Chile. Um, she was going to Santiago. So uh, last Sunday, we put her on a plane. She went from uh, Denver to Houston, Houston to Santiago, Chile, Santiago, Chile to Uruguay. Okay, overnight flight from Denver to, or excuse me, from Houston to Santiago. 
So, of course, you don't get much sleep, right? Um, she was supposed to get in about 6.15 our time. And uh, so she was going to get online and text us when she got there. Uh, I, of course, wake up at 6 a.m. because I'm a worried parent. And 6.15, nothing. 6.30, nothing. 6.45, nothing. 7 o'clock, nothing. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, it takes time to get through. Maybe she had a hard time getting online or whatever. 7.30, nothing. 7.45, finally, I pick up the phone. I text her. I go, Winter, how are you doing? Are you there? She texts me back. I'm sitting on the ground sobbing because I lost my wallet. Yeah, right? That exact gasp was what came out of my mouth at 7.45. And I immediately tapped Laura. I'm like, we got to get up. We got to handle this right now. And so Laura gets all tasked, you know, and I'm like all compassionate. I'm like, my daughter, she's <laughs> Laura's like, just get her to find her wallet, right? And so we just had this moment, right? And, uh, and so I calmed her down, right? And Laura got on the tasks of like checking the bank account, making sure it wasn't stolen, all that stuff. And we did the divide and conquer thing. It was awesome. Finally, we calmed Winter down. She went and looked at the United Gate. She went to the United Gate, the United Counter, found somebody who spoke English. They found her wallet, brought it back to her, and had all the cash, all the credit card, except for the fact that, meanwhile, we put a stop on the credit card, and they canceled the credit card, and now had to send her a new one. So, whatever. It's fine. And we ended up uh, getting her encouraged enough to go change some money in. So she grew up a lot in an hour, and that was great. Um, but anyways, back to this. All right. So um, I, I now have this experience, right? Now I can actually uh, I can actually understand people who let their children go off to a foreign country and how they feel. Uh, you have to be married to understand how to minister to married people. Could you imagine going to somebody for marriage counseling and they're not married? It doesn't work that way. You have to have been an alcoholic in order to learn how to talk to alcoholics. You have to have been homeless to make a judgment on somebody who's homeless. And I hear a lot of people judging homeless people that have never been homeless before. You have to have been stuck in drugs in order to understand somebody who's been stuck in drugs and minister to them appropriately. You are only as good as your experience allows you to be when it comes to ministry. And most people tend to think, man, I'm just not, I just don't know what I would say. I don't know. Just minister out of your experience, out of your brokenness, out of who you are, out of the, the junk that God has placed on your shoulders and in, in, your, uh, in your lap. Experience opens the ears and sharpens the eyes. It's precisely why we need multiple voices, multiple people, multiple struggles that have all been redeemed by the one man, Jesus Christ, speaking to multiple things. I have a certain experience that you don't have, and you have a certain experience that I don't have. Some of you, you've suffered great, like you've suffered the loss of parents, and you're struggling through that today. I've never lost a parent. I don't know what that's like. Someday I will, but right now I can't effectively minister to you in that. We have other people that can. This is why we are one body. It's not one person doing the job. It's all of us doing the job together. We can minister better together and help each other, strengthen each other. Yet in our society, we're encouraged to hide your defects, to hide your struggles, to always pretend to be strong, to always have to be well accomplished. This is not this way with God's people. Not so with you. Even the words of Jesus, He tells the people, He tells His, uh, his disciples, the, the, the Gentiles have a certain way of working, not so with you. Not so with you. We must embrace our issues and give glory for the redemption and salvation. Realize that the things we've been saved from are the things we get to help others with. 
Okay, so that's Nehemiah. He's a listening leader. Additionally, verses 6 through 13, where all of a sudden he sees, not only does he hear people's whining, because that's one thing, he can, you can hear them complaining. You can hear complaining. Everybody hears complaining. I complain every day. I hear it enough. But Nehemiah is a fighter and he takes action against what he hears. It leads, Nehemiah is a godly leader. He only, not only does he listen to the complaints of his people, but he stands in the face of the injustice that surrounds him and he says, no more. No more. This, I think, is one of the absolute crucial differences between what it means to be a godly leader and just kind of floating. We can listen to people. And if our heart gets harder and harder and harder and harder and harder and we don't do anything about it, it stops right there. It stops right there. And it actually gets worse. Because we run from the fight and we don't get involved and we don't do what we're supposed to do and our heart gets calloused to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah stands in the face of the sinful Israelites who are sinning against his own people. He calls them out. And he can only do this because of his love for justice, his love for people, and the fact that he loves people more than himself. Which brings us to the next one. Nehemiah is not only a fighter, but Nehemiah as a godly leader is humble. He is humble. Nehemiah looks not at the things he deserves, right? Like he lists all the things that other people have taken. 40 shekels of silver plus food and wine. And he says, that I could have taken that, but I didn't. He says he, he humbles himself, he considers himself nothing, and he sets himself aside. And then the last one, in verses 17 through 19, not only does he not take from people, but he also does the opposite. He gives to people out of his own pocket. He's a giver. Strikes me that this passage that Nehemiah gives extensively for the sake of the cause. It's a big thing. Once God flips your perspective, when when God flips your heart and your heart breaks for the injustice around you and it breaks for the mission that you've been given and you're, you're focused on a task and on a mission, you will automatically give. It's not even something you have to do. It's something that will just roll out of you. Roll out of you. Hospitality, giving, financially, with your time, your energy, and your money. If you are sold on the mission, it will happen. If it's not happening, my guess is it's because there's been a breakdown in what you see as the mission. It's a result of the gospel. It's not how you gain salvation. You don't give in order to get your salvation. It's a direct result of the salvation that you've already had. But like I told you, we have to make this change because we're talking about Nehemiah. I want you to see Jesus in Nehemiah. And I I, I hope you're picking up on this already. Jesus is the living gospel. He's the living good news. He's the, when Jesus came, the, the Bible tells us that, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and then the Word became flesh and came and dwelt among us, or as the message says, the Word, the Word that Jesus took up flesh, took up residence, He moved into the neighborhood, is what the message says. Moved into the neighborhood. And what happened is, God sent His Son to show us who He is in the clearest way possible. Because He was shouting from all these images of like Nehemiah and some of the kings and the prophets and some of the ways that they're speaking. He's saying, this is kind of me. And this, but he moved all the mediators out of the way and said, no, there's not one mediator, the, the God-man Jesus Christ. He's one man and he's going to show you who I am. And so if you didn't know this, Jesus is a listening leader. 
Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says that he is acquainted with every single broken piece of us. He's broken. He, he's acquainted with all of our weakness, with all of our sin, with all of our difficulty, with all the struggles, with all of the death, with all of the loss. He's acquainted with that. He knows it. And he hears your cry in a way that somebody who has experience can hear it. This is something that's miraculous. This sets apart the Christian faith from all kinds of other world philosophies. I've studied all kinds of them. I'm not going to say everyone, but I will say I've studied lots of different philosophies, worldviews, religions. There is not a single one who says that God came into this world to take on the brokenness for the express purpose of being able to show that he knows exactly what we're going through. That makes Him the God that we can come to when we have exceptional loss. The God we can come to when we're lost. Or the God we can come to when we don't know what to do. He's the God that we can come to that builds this relationship based off of experience. But He's not just a listening leader. He's also a fighter. He's also a fighter. He came to take a stand against injustice by taking the brunt and the full weight of every single injustice that has ever crossed everything and anything. He took the brunt of that so that he now owns the full weight of that in his lap. He has it. He owns it. No other God that I know of came to take the brunt of this messed up world. And he's also humble. Even just the concept of the, the idea of Jesus being God who comes is the, the very act of humility. He stoops down to say, hey, I get that you just, I want to make sure that this is so clear. I get it that you don't understand. Let me come. Let me show you. You know, um, fathers, there are a couple ways to approach your children, right? When they're, uh, when they're, when they're messing up or when they feel messed up. When they feel messed up. I have kids that are old enough now to know that like they have some serious identity issues. And when their soul gets crushed and they're crying and they're talking to you, there's one way to approach them. And one's to stand at a distance and say, well, you need to do this and this and this. Here are my instructions for your life. Have a good one, kid. Or one is to humbly stoop down, put your arm around them, and say, hey, I understand. Hey, I understand. This is exactly what our God did. Could have stayed off in a distance and said, hey, here's my instructions for your world. Good luck, kid. Instead, he stoops down and he says, I understand. Let me walk through this with you. And then not only that, but Jesus is a giver. He came to give us everything that we never knew we always needed. Which is the direct... I mean, that's what happens when He changes our heart. He doesn't come to give us stuff. He comes to give us the things that are primarily the things of a new heart. He gives us a yearning for Him. He gives us a heart that breaks for the injustice of the world. He gives us a heart that hopes and yearns and longs to see Him move. And so therefore, we look at Nehemiah, right? Like Nehemiah is a listening leader. He's a fighter. He's humble and he's a giver. You look at Jesus. Jesus is a leader who knows. He's one who fights injustice. He's one who's humble. And he's one that will give. Now you need to look at, okay, if we're to follow Jesus, what type of people ought we be? Well... Following Jesus, following Jesus will cost you the ability to live alone. Will cost you the ability to live on your own. God's people will get in the way of that. You will have to become a listening person. Following Jesus will cost you comfort. Will cost you comfort. Your heart will break for injustices around you that you didn't even know your heart could break over. 
you'll begin to see people who are leaving their kids to die in this world. Your heart will see people who are who are lost and who are wrecking their own lives and their relationships. Following Jesus will cost you control over your own life. You will, you will be required to say, Lord Jesus, this is yours. This is yours. And I am tired of ruling it anyways. And following Jesus will also cost you the ability and the desire to hang on to the stuff of this world because the reality is, is it hangs on to you. So we become givers. This isn't something we manipulate. It isn't something you do. It isn't something you try to do. It's something that just happens when you come to Jesus and you say, enough's enough. You, that you, this is your heart. This is your life now. Change it. Take it over. Make me more like you. And what He does is He fills you with His Spirit. And this stuff happens. You become a listener. You become a giver. You become a, a humble servant. And you become somebody who fights injustice. And if you've never done that, or maybe you have, and all of a sudden you've realized, like, man, this stuff has crept back in. I don't listen to people. I am not humble. I do not give, and I will not fight injustice. This is the moment for us to be able to come to Jesus and to say, I need your spirit. I need your spirit to build up my faith. When you see people hurting and in loss around you, does your heart ache? When you see people that injustice is facing them, does your heart ache? When you see the fact that maybe you're not giving, you're taking, does your heart ache? I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're at. But I do ask that you would see the value of Jesus. You would value Him correctly. You would help yourself to see, like you would, you can't help yourself to see it, but you would ask Jesus to show you how incredibly uh, worthy He is of all of your life and all of your worship. Don't misjudge it. Because if there's anything we learn from Jonesy's judging of values, right? It's easy to misjudge things. It's easy to misjudge things. Let's pray and then let's sing. Jesus, we come before you. Um, come before you and I just ask in my own life that you would not let that crust that is on my heart stay there. Lord, oftentimes I'm scared to ask you to break my heart again. But I know and you know that after many years of following you, that crust grows thick. I pray that you'd break my heart for the people around me. I pray that you'd break my, my friends' hearts for the people around them. Help us not to get standoffish and help us not to close our ears and to close our eyes and to not reach out. Help us to reach out and to help. Help us to be the type of people that reflect you because we have you living inside of us. And Lord, if, if there's anybody here who has never given you their life, I pray that you would move them in the, in the pit of their soul and in the pit of their stomach and in the pit of their heart, that you will move them to say, Lord Jesus, you need to take this. You need to take my life. You need to take my life because I am messing this up. And if there's any here who've prayed that prayer and they've, they've given their lives to you, but just like me, the heart gets crusty. 
And I pray that You would battle that back, that You'd shine light into dark places, and that You would help us to not assume that we are good fruit or good trees bearing good fruit, but help us to know, Lord Jesus, that You, we need You, and apart from You, we can do nothing. And as we sing this song, Lord, help us to make changes in our lives and in our heart. Meet with us as we offer ourselves to You. Lord, we love You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.